from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The world's on fire with terror threats and plots. And U.S. diplomats are in that line of fire. 2012, Mexico. Two U.S. embassy officials were wounded due to concentrated fire that was able to penetrate the vehicle's armor. 2012, in Pakistan. A car packed with explosives rammed into the side of an American consulate vehicle. Two diplomats were wounded. 2016. On the 6th of June, an accredited U.S. diplomat entering the American embassy compound was attacked by a Russian policeman. In early 2017, some U.S. government personnel at our embassy in Havana, Cuba, reported some incidents which have caused a variety of physical symptoms. Nausea to exhaustion, hours-long migraines. The challenges for diplomatic security are enormous. But on this program, people familiar with the State Department's Bureau of Diplomatic Security, responsible for protecting diplomats, are warning. I hate to say it, but I think it may take a crisis. A crisis very similar to, or worse than, Benghazi. Because they're being asked to do the impossible. The administration's asked us to reduce our budgets, yet we're seeing no reduction in mission sets. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. In our last episode, we brought you the story of U.S. diplomats in Havana, Cuba, who'd been sickened by a mysterious illness that no one could put their finger on. At this stage, it's still not clear what or who is behind it. But on this program, we take the concerns of diplomats to a new level. There have been numerous attempts to kill or harm them in recent years. And simply looking around the world, from Europe to the Middle East to Asia to Latin America, the danger grows worse each year. But oddly, the people who have to protect them are being ordered to slash their budgets, and they believe another tragedy like Benghazi is looming. So that's the problem. Now, joining us in the studio to talk about it is a man who knows that problem inside out. John Eustace retired a few weeks ago as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Diplomatic Security. Now, he told us he did it because it was time. After 30-plus years in the service, it was time for him to go. But I also got the sense in talking to him that there was a bit of frustration. So, John, help us to understand a little bit about your frustration and what drove it. Well, one of the challenges we have, diplomatic security, I think, if you look globally, and if you count all different aspects, um, I think uh, too much is emphasis is put on the special agent cadre, which really only makes up about... Uh, 2,100 Foreign Service Special Agents and another 100 Civil Service Special Agents. But there's 52,000 members of the greater DS family worldwide. Um, I think uh, the the challenge is we are getting squeezed, as I mentioned earlier, on personnel. We are looking at a looming budget crunch uh, where where the administration has asked us to reduce our budgets, us, the department, Yet we're seeing no reduction in mission sets. 
you know, we have, uh, you know, we're continuing to have high number of people in in Iraq, as you can imagine, and in Afghanistan, and, uh, you know, the world's not getting easier. We're still uh, spending lots of money in lots of different posts around the world. There's no shortage of places that want our presence and and, uh, need our presence. But at the same time, when you start taking away your money and your personnel without reduction of mission sets, something's going to give. That, uh, being an outsider looking in, seems as though it sets sets up the possibility for danger, perhaps for a disastrous outcome. Well, and I hate to, I hate to say it, but I think it may take a crisis for the administration to, to, to realize that, listen, we can't continue to play with actings who aren't really given the authority to make the key decisions and to move the missions forward, whether it's acting uh, ambassadors overseas, acting assistant secretaries, acting undersecretaries. When you say crisis, what do you mean? Crises, you know, it could, it could take something that where, where there's a... Um, uh, forced evacuation from a post or military actions or all sorts of different scenarios that could come up that it's going to require a strong diplomatic response, not just military response. Secretary Mattis and his company has, has that well in hand. And the possibility of injuries or loss of life. Well, it goes back to, to uh, Benghazi. What you're hearing is the aftermath of the attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya. At 9.40 p.m. on September 11, 2012, members of the terror group Ansar al-Sharia attacked that compound, and it led to the death of U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens and U.S. Foreign Service Information Officer Sean Smith. The incident also led to the killing of CIA contractors Tyrone Woods and Glenn Doherty, and 10 other people were wounded. You had a limited amount of agents on site uh, to be able to... Uh, to get the job done, and and although their efforts were certainly heroic, um, you see the result of um, that kind of staffing shortage, uh, the inability to to consistently monitor the uh, frog in the boiling pot with uh, a rising terror threat. To get some context on the problem diplomatic security is facing, we turn to Fred Burton, the former deputy chief of the Counterterrorism Bureau and diplomatic security at the State Department. The, the mission of the organization is one that uh, uh, always has mission creep, meaning uh, when you have um, volatile areas that are opened up like uh, places like Libya uh, or Mogadishu uh, on top of uh, the ever-present uh, protection requirements in Kabul and Beirut and Baghdad, uh, and then um, think about what we're seeing unfold in Europe today with these random attacks where uh, you have huge uh, diplomatic uh, presence. So uh, the job of uh, the DSS ha- has always been one where uh, a fixed number of assets uh, get stretched very, very thin. And usually what happens in that boom and bust cycle of funding and manpower uh, ebbs and flows, uh, tragedies happen. And and one thing for sure in the world of the DSS, JJ, is that when tragedy happens, it's usually very bad, like we saw in Benghazi. John Eustace was on the job that day, but he wasn't in Benghazi, and he saw it coming. I, I was uh, I was personally overseas in, in Pakistan when, when that mm-hmm. happened. And uh, I know for a fact that it was a challenge globally that uh, that same time frame. What happened in Benghazi, um, 
was was tragic. I, I personally had met Ambassador Stevens mm-hmm. uh, in the months before that. What did you think when you heard what was going on? Well, I, mean, I know there's lots of uh, back and forth on the, the quote-unquote video. Well, I know for a fact that the video spurred protests globally. Uh, I had tens of thousands. Now, you're talking about that supposed uh, video um, that um, seemed disrespect. Of the prophet. The prophet that triggered supposedly protest in some places. Oh, no, not supposed. Actual protests. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, uh, I I was, my last position in Pakistan was uh, the mission security chief chief for the all embassy of Pakistan. And so you witnessed it. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, so in our consulates in, in Karachi and Peshawar and Lahore, plus the embassy in Islamabad, we had tens and thousands of protesters outside the gates and fences. Thankfully, our colleagues within the Pakistani security services kept them at bay, but it wasn't a lack of trying. Uh, at the same time, we had, uh, if you go back and, and read, we had uh, attacks at our embassies in yeah. uh, all over North Africa and as far east, I think, as Indonesia. Yeah, I recall that now. And and, and Yemen and all sorts of countries. Yeah. But they were all spurred by this release of this video, which, which uh, challenged the prophet. After exhaustive hearings and ending one of the longest, costliest, and most bitter partisan congressional investigations ever, the House Select Committee on Benghazi issued a report saying that it found no evidence that Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was at fault in those attacks. That didn't go over well with many in the diplomatic security community, and to this very day, some still point the finger at the State Department's leadership for ignoring warnings that indicated Benghazi was coming. It was a messy situation that involved political considerations, terrorism, and at the end of the day, the loss of innocent life, which brings many in the diplomatic security world to the same place now. They see many of the same signs that they saw before Benghazi. Some, like John Eustace, say the president and the State Department leadership have to understand the climate that diplomatic security is working in. Fred Burton agrees. He says it's not about training, but it has a lot to do with preparation. No, it's not a training issue per se. It's one where uh, you're usually tested by fire, uh, being uh, thrown into uh, ever increasing responsible positions with uh, a limited amount of time on the job, uh, where the Secret Service, since they have much more resources than the FBI, uh, they have a very um, fixed way individuals get promoted inside the organizations. Uh, The DSS has never been like that. It's always been the kind of place where uh, you are literally thrown to the fire and tested early on. Uh, And let me give you an example of that, uh, JJ. Um, In 1988, uh, after having been uh, on the job only three years, uh, I was sent over to investigate uh, the plane crash which killed President Zia of Pakistan and uh, the last U.S. ambassador killed in the line of duty before – Ambassador Stevens in Benghazi. Um, So in other organizations, you would have had uh, folks on the job with uh, 10, 15, 20 years experience doing that kind of work. This, Fred, seems to have a lot to do with bandwidth. Correct. Uh, Think in concept of this. Uh, There's only one J.J. Green. Uh, How many interviews can you physically do on any given day? So uh, there's a fixed number of DS agents 
So whenever the Secretary of State wants to travel uh, in places that are not scheduled, uh, or um, the um, uh, Secretary to the United Nations um, uh, wants to take an impromptu trip uh, because of some world event, uh, those are the kinds of mission creep assignments that uh, add to your existing bandwidth. So uh, if the Secretary of State adds one to two to three additional stops as part of his trip, uh, you, you are drawing from that existing pool of agents. Uh, so uh, if U.S. diplomats want to go in and out of Mogadishu, for example, uh, or um, elsewhere, uh, you are always dealing with that same pool of agents. So uh, that's the challenge. You can't hire agents fast enough because it takes a good year to get them trained up. Um, and uh, so uh, the organization has always lived in this perpetual state of reduced resources that ebbs and flows after tragedy. Yeah, you know, you mentioned two places. Uh, you mentioned uh, Somalia, Mogadishu, and you mentioned Libya. Obviously, everyone remembers uh, Benghazi, but there are other places as well where diplomats appear to be on the front lines, and that is one in Russia. We've heard numerous reports in the last couple of years about diplomats either being roughed up or uh, or essentially being in some kind of altercation with 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 Russian criminals or who knows Russian agents maybe in Cuba we've heard recently about diplomats being ta- targeted uh, by some kind of ultrasound weapon so there there are lots of hot spots uh, it appears where diplomats are in the line of fire what are some of those other hot spots well you have to separate them into two categories uh, and, and you mentioned Cuba uh, and Russia that's in the uh, foreign counterintelligence. Uh, arena, which uh, has always been problematic for DS because of the perpetual harassment that occurs. But uh, anywhere where you have a Russian sphere of influence from a counterintelligence perspective, uh, you're going to have uh, a high counterintelligence threat. And uh, that's the kind of challenge that you're looking at uh, in anywhere uh, in the breakaway republics, uh, such as um, uh, places like um, Azerbaijan, for example, uh, uh, that's the kind of spot where uh, not only do you have a counterintelligence concern, but you also have a counterterrorism concern. Then when you're looking in the counterterrorism arena, uh, literally there's no place that's untouched today. Uh, certainly some are more high threat than others. Uh, your, your Karachis, your Islamabads, your Lahores, uh, places like Manila. Uh, so there's no shortage of places where terror could strike, uh, and uh, that's the one thing that I think most people don't understand, that wherever there's a large American footprint and wherever there's a U.S. consulate or embassy, uh, you will find DS agents um, usually um, uh, understaffed uh, or um, doing a multitude of different jobs from terrorism to counterintelligence to physical security to local guard force management uh, or just managing uh, a range of other assignments that, that gets placed upon their shoulders based upon uh, their footprint in that country. Another reason why John Eustace says this is not the time to cut the budget for diplomatic security and it's not the time to think 
that the world is safe enough to draw down or limit security personnel. Every compound we have across the globe is a little different. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the challenges that we have as security professionals overseas is our requirement to risk manage. Yeah. We have to manage risk every day. But if someone passes away or through um, uh, there is a complete risk aversion uh, on the parts of the Washington, I would say. We're, we're expected to manage risk, but if anything were to happen, zero tolerance on, on anything happening. Explain that. So let's say Foreign Service Officer Green mm -hmm. wants to go out to visit a development site in, in, a, in a place that's not as permissive as you'd like it to be. Right. Usually that's done in coordination with the security officers at post. And we come up with a plan to not only make sure you get there and back safe, uh, we, miss, we risk manage mm -hmm. that. We say, listen, in, in JJ's case, we can get him out there in a vehicle. We don't need any support from, over, from any security support. Um, we can bring him back. Every day we're in Afghanistan and Iraq, those type of movements are more and more problematic. Um, but anything can happen on any given day. Mm -hmm. uh, we've, mm -hmm. uh, when I was in Islam, uh, in Pakistan, uh, we did have an attack on motorcade where we had personnel injured, managed to get them back. Uh, all of our folks survived the attack, but it's, it's something we have to do every day as risk managers. Uh, the challenge is, you know, part of the idea of the foreign service is if the soldier is killed in the battlefield, you know, it's as unfortunate as it is, and, and having served in, in the Marine Corps, I understand the loss of life is tragic. Mm -hmm. But it really doesn't make page one, uh, unfortunately, in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, if foreign service officer dies, they're in page one. Gotcha. We're signing up for the same, we're up for similar gotcha. missions. In terms of the risk management, it, it was your job to make sure that the personnel could get to from point A to point B safely and, and protect, back. Protect housing, protect facilities, protect all sorts of right. things. But if it was determined that it couldn't be done safely, then it wouldn't happen. That where they, they our recommendations, we recommend uh, to the chief of mission or mm -hmm. the ambassador, same either or whoever has delegated it down. We can do this safely. We can't do this safely. Okay. So at some point, someone has to accept the responsibility right. for the security of the mission. But in terms of what you were saying about Washington being risk averse, if if they got wind of the fact that there was that risk that you might recommend to the ambassador. Uh, then Washington might squash that potential mission. Well, then they, we call that the the ten thousand mile screwdriver of trying to <laughs> trying to uh, to uh, make every decision for you. Right. Um, we we develop. You know, those of us who've been in for a while, I think as you become the boss at, at various missions, you understand how the risk management process works, mm -hmm. uh, and you understand how to navigate the. It's called navigating the gray between the black and white, and how you get the mission accomplished. Well, certainly not an easy job on any level. The S is short on personnel. I was going to ask you that, but you've answered it already. Give us a sense of how short. I mean, I, I, it's hard to identify a, a, a number because we're like we're a service that requires constant bottom you know, input from the bottom as there is attrition from the top. Uh, in the last several years, our, our attrition has been fairly stable. Given right now what we're suffering through right now with a, with a kind of a quasi-freeze in hiring, not just hiring our foreign service special agents, but all of our civil service hiring, our uh, personal services contractor hiring, third-party contractor restricted hiring. So it's so what what it results is is that we're constantly sending folks who are domestically based currently to to temporary duty assignments 
at various posts because the permanent replacements aren't there yet. So we constantly are TDYing, as we say, uh, with diplomatic security. So we've talked about the risk. We've talked about the threats and heard you tell us about the challenges. So now tell us what the climate is like. What's it like working at the Diplomatic Security Service now? Today, you know, we are the most widely represented organization in the federal government, uh, law enforcement organization, with uh, agents in uh, 270 posts in 170 countries across the globe. Uh, Domestically, we have agents in 31 field offices and resident offices across the country. How would you, um, knowing that, how would you assess the climate in which most of these people work? If you were to go on to the uh, state.gov, Diplomatic Security's homepage, I mean, you look up the, uh, the key leadership positions, you'll see that there are several vacancies and several folks in acting capacities. And I think it's symptomatic of the entire department where under the current administration, um, Secretary Tillerson is, is allowing positions to go vacant and not able to, to work with the administration down the road potentially to identify replacements and move people up into these positions. Why is, why is that happening? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think there's uh, certainly opinions across the board on why he's purposely letting these positions go languish. And I, you know, it'd be speculation on my part, but certainly I think I know there's uh, some of the challenges that we face in diplomatic security is, and I think you'll we'll get into this when you start talking about uh, vision and morale. And, and I think mm-hmm. part of that results in a, a lack of a, a singular vision uh, and that not just within diplomatic security, within the entire Department of State. And you mentioned the word purposely letting this happen. And why why do you feel as though this is purposeful? I think there's a, there's a, um, certainly there's a goal the current administration has of trying to get to a a magic number of reducing what they say that, you know, trying to get to a certain number of personnel wise. But that has twofold effect. One, you're losing your leadership and you're slowing the hiring process. So you're, you're squeezing both ends of the, of the spectrum within personnel. Lack of leadership and lack of intake of, of young, not just uh, DS personnel, but uh, leadership throughout the department. Twofold effect, losing leadership and losing new blood. First, the leadership. Give us a sense of how it's impacting the leadership in terms of the loss of leadership. Well, we lost our uh, assistant secretary, as is typical in, in many times during a change of administrations. You'll lose your senior leadership, but usually, I'll say usually because I've been doing this for a number of years, uh, they're fairly quick to identify replacements and bring them on board because unless uh, the person comes from a diplomatic security background, I'm, once again, I'll use diplomatic security as an example bureau within the department, um, there is a learning curve uh, to that the person needs to ramp up to, up to, to where they're comfortable representing diplomatic security to the rest of the department and outside the department. Um, absent that, uh, without a permanent replacement identified, <clears throat> this learning curve continues to stretch until a point where a person is identified, and then the learning begins. We're already in approaching September without a, an assistant secretary being identified. Also, our number two, which is who carries the title of director of the Diplomatic Security Service, uh, uh, our most recent director departed the same day I did, and his was, replacement has not been identified. Was that a coincidence? The director at the time, Bill Miller, uh, was on a recall. So he had actually retired and was brought back on. So uh-huh. he was due to leave at the end of uh, September anyway. He left, he left a, uh, several weeks earlier than scheduled. 
Yeah, and and was your decision to leave? Uh, did Mine not... was purely my own decision. Uh huh. And 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 why did you leave? By the way, were you tired of it, or did you did I think you? There was you know, you know at, with uh, almost thirty one years in the service, um, it is time for us. Uh, I was hired in what they call the Inman generation. Inman hires Bobby Inman. Bobby Inman. Admiral Bobby Inman. Correct. So um, I came in in 86, and uh, it was time for me to, to make room for the next generation because the Inman hires have held a lot of the leadership position for the last several years, and it's time to move on. Uh, um, and I was probably another, maybe I could have stayed another year or two, but I think part of the issue is still a lack of guidance and not knowing which direction the organization is going. I didn't feel like I was running away from the organization. I certainly um, hoping to leave and I hope I left it in a better shape than I, when I first got here 30 years ago. So, um, you, you're saying essentially you weren't forced out. You, you left of your own Correct. volition and you didn't leave because you were upset about the way things were in the department. I think there is, or, a, there's a component of that. I think if, if we, you know, assuming, We'd had a, 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 an assistant secretary named, a director named, and we were marching forward. Yeah, I probably could have stayed another couple of years. I think part of the departure was a, a bit of frustration mm-hmm. uh, within the department leadership. But at it's, the same time, it's, it's, it, at the same time, it is time to move on and let the newer, the younger generations move up. And at the end of the day, if the diplomatic security service is impacted significantly by budget cuts, which leads to less personnel being available, Fred Burton believes it's going to lead to another crisis. That crisis would be uh, either uh, the uh, specific targeting of another U.S. embassy like we saw in um, Benghazi with the special mission compound uh, or uh, the surveillance and potential targeting of uh, American diplomats as they move uh, off-site uh, in locations like uh, Pakistan, uh, Islamabad, and Karachi. Uh, th- that's that's part of the challenge is being able to keep tabs on uh, all the Americans, all the official Americans uh, in country uh, and uh, their day-to-day uh, duties and responsibilities that take them out into the community. And I suppose considering that terrorists and criminals and other actors that may want to do harm to U.S. US officials and just anybody have a full range of, of modern tools that they can use today that make attacks a lot easier, that make attacks a lot more effective. Is that correct? That is correct. Although uh, your terrorist and criminal operator still has to follow uh, what we call the attack cycle by conducting uh, reconnaissance, pre-operational surveillance, and so forth uh, that expose them to the possibility of being detected, um, that um, that cycle still works. And you know, one of the the benefits that uh, diplomatic security does have, uh, JJ, in their post-9/11 world is there is an enhanced intelligence collection, you know, targeting terror plots and so forth. But, uh, you know, as we have seen unfold, uh, you know, as recently as uh, uh, last week in Barcelona, uh, the unpredictable nature of these kinds of attacks mean that you always have to be on guard uh, in places like Barcelona uh, and London. Uh, You know, these were the kinds of posts years ago that – 
we're relatively untouched uh, when it comes to uh, acts of terror. Uh, in, in our old work, uh, everybody knew that uh, places like Beirut and Lima and Bogota were highly volatile. Uh, now uh, the world's on fire with terror threats and plots. So uh, the challenges for diplomatic security are, are enormous. Target USA asked the Diplomatic Security Service for a comment and an interview, but they responded, quote, DS will be unable to participate at this time, end quote. It is our sincere hope that all turns out well, and we will be monitoring to see what happens. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchists, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for checking in with us. Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. You can also let me know what you think at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at WTOP.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, everybody. The new Podcast One app is here. There's no other podcast app like this one. Download it in the App Store or on Google Play. You can find out everything about your favorite shows. You can get more content for Target USA. You can find articles, social media, episodes. You can make playlists. There's so much you can do. It's easy to comment and connect with other show fans because we have our own little community there. You can share your favorite content and see behind-the-scenes photos, get 360 video, or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. There's over a 1,000 videos on there right now. It's like you're in the studio. Really cool. So many things you can do, including fun things like rewards for listening and much, much more. So if you don't do anything else today, remember to download the Podcast One app. HBO's Game of Thrones is back for its seventh season. Winter is finally here, and so are the White Walkers. Will the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros survive the threat from the North, or will they fall in the looming war for the Iron Throne? After you're done watching an episode, join the discussion here on the Game of Thrones After Show on Podcast One. Every week, our hosts discuss each episode in detail, from shocking twists to fan theories, as the series chronicles the violent struggle among the realm's noble families for ultimate power. Join the fray every week on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.